2 Samuel chapter 22, verses 2 through 4 says, He said, The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. My God, my rock, where I seek refuge. My shield, the horn of my salvation. My stronghold, my refuge, and my savior. You save me from violence. I called to the Lord, who is worthy of praise, and I was saved from my enemies. Will you join me in prayer? Father, you are the commander of heaven's host and Lord over all creation. Yet the nations rage against you and they rage against one another. But you've not left us defenseless or without ever present reminders that you are our refuge, our stronghold, and our savior. Thank you for our soldiers, sailors, marines, and airmen that for a time laid aside their liberty as a worthy sacrifice to stand as mighty oaks that the rest of us may find shelter underneath. Their sacrifice and service are examples of a way of life that you've called us all to live. Bless them, Father, and may your name be honored by their sacrifices. For you are worthy of praise because we have been saved. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, Patrick. Welcome this morning. A little worship to thaw out your morning. Did you have a good week last week? Join that warm weather? How many of you had your snowblowers right by the garage door? Like ready, ready to go? So many of us. And those are people who live in Idaho because we know what's coming. But you know what? Praise God for a beautiful morning. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. Very last chapter there, and today we're going to be finishing our message series on our vision, our mission as a church, which we've been talking about for the last six weeks, including today, and I just want to kind of uh, start with a memory, and that is the first guy, the first person that I ever led to the Lord, and his name was Billy, and we were both about 16 years old, and we had sixth period study hall together. And Billy was a tall, stocky guy with like shoulder-length blonde rocker hair. This was the 80s. And uh, just a, a wicked mullet. Beautiful, glorious. Business in the front, party in the back. You know that, right? And he would always wear like this uh, 1970s wool, really thick wool daishiki poncho. And you could always find him either sleeping in class or smoking weed behind the gym. And uh, we never really interacted much. And I was a brand new Christian. I was on fire for Jesus. I mean to tell you, that is an understatement. I, I just assumed Jesus had so profoundly transformed my life that all I had to do was tell someone about that and tell them the gospel. And they would just, of course, immediately want to surrender to the Lord. And have faith. And that's not how it worked. And Billy, one day we were sitting in class. And I opened up my Bible in study hall. And I just began to read like the Gospel of John or something. And he said, hey man, what are you reading that for? And I looked at him. I said, because I love the word of God. And he said, what are you, some kind of Christian Bible thumper? I remember that's exactly what he asked me. You some kind of Christian Bible thumper? I was like, as a matter of fact, I am. (laughs) And by the way, did you know you're going to hell if you don't know Jesus? (laughs) And Jesus is the only way, the truth, and the life. I mean, I just, I laid it down for him. And it was so funny because if I could just show you up on the screen, if I had a picture of the look on Billy's face, and it was not just the shock of this Christian kid laying it down like that, being bold. 
it, it was something else. It was really something spiritual ha- happened to him in that moment. Um, as inartful as I was, that message pierced his soul. And I could see it stick in him like a seed. And it just, he just went, oh, okay. You know, and, and then the next week, he would find me in various places on campus and ask me questions. He would make a beeline to me at lunch or in the hallway or somewhere uh, or out in the smoking area, the student smoking area. What's well, funny? It was Virginia. It was, we did our field trips to like the Philip Morris cigarette plant. You know, that's where, that's where they took us. So, um, so, so he would find me and he would say, hey, man, do you think, do you think I'm going to hell? And I go, yeah. <laughs> he goes, what, what happens to everybody when they die? And he just had these questions. Like, what if I give my life to Jesus and I'm not, and I can't follow through? And so after a few weeks of this, uh, it, it was just this really odd coincidence where he had gotten a hall pass to go to the restroom, and I was late for class, quite late. <laughs> and uh, we just met each other in the hallway, and he walked right up to me and said, man, what do I have to do to become a Christian? I was like, you praying the sinner's prayer with me right now. I took out my four spiritual laws. We went through it. I mean, I was hardcore. And he began, he began to grow and get plugged into the youth group and be discipled. Now, fast forward a few years. Now I'm in college, and in college I'm working on my degree in biblical literacy, or biblical literature, and biblical languages. That's a really hard degree to get. Like I'm spending all of my time just studying Hebrew and Greek and ancient Near Eastern literature, and so I'm just spending all of my time doing this. And then I go up to the prayer chapel one night, I remember this very distinctly, I went up to our prayer chapel on campus, beautiful uh, prayer chapel that we had there in the Kirkland area, and I remember I went, there was just a little light just a heavenly little light right on the front step. And I went down and I began to pray for all the lost souls. I just began to pray my heart out to God for God to win and preach to those lost souls. And then I became so convicted because what I realized was it had been a very long time since I had witnessed to somebody like I did Billy. It had, it, I had been so enamored with the romantic a study of the scriptures and the languages and all of that. that I, and I had been praying for people, but I wasn't sharing the gospel with anybody. And so I felt convicted. And from that moment on, I began to sort of come back to this message we're going to be talking about today, which is the Great Commission. The Great Commission. As Christians, we are God's evangelistic program. We're the program. Uh, a few years ago, I took a seminary course from a guy named Mark Middleberg. Mark Middleberg wrote the book, Contagious Christianity. Contagious Christianity. And how to become a contagious Christian. And it's a really excellent, excellent practical book about how to share your faith. And I encourage you to get that. But in response to the question, why aren't more evangelicals evangelical? Like, why aren't why is the statistic about evangelicals sharing their faith so bad? And Mark Middleberg, this was his response. He says, I call it evangelistic entropy. Or the second law of spiritual dynamics goes like this. Any Christian, any church, any denomination left to itself for long enough will tend to see the value of evangelism diminish to the point where it becomes almost normal to just not reach out. And, and that is not a judgment on us. That is just a data point. It's a fact Every church, every pastor, every person who is saved experiences what I call mission drift. We just drift into things that are not the mission that Jesus gave the church. 
And we need to constantly come back to this and remind ourselves of this mission. And what is this mission? Our mission is to make disciples of Jesus who gather together and worship God, the one true God in spirit and in truth. And when we gather those disciples for worship, we want to grow them in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then... We want to scatter you back out. We want to go back out into the world in our various places in the world and we want to tell and proclaim the good news that Jesus saves. Salvation is in Christ alone. And so we're going to look at the text today in Matthew 28 that really gives us our marching orders as a church following the apostles. Now, just a little background. The disciples, Matthew 28, 16 through 20, they have to go back to Galilee. Why is that? They're in Jerusalem. Most of the the times that Jesus appears to them and teaches them or whatever is in Jerusalem. But when Jesus raises from the dead, he tells the women, tell the boys to go back to Galilee. Why do they have to go back to Galilee? Galilee is a three arduous three-day journey back north. Well, for a couple of reasons. One would be logistical. Historically, we know in order for them to transfer their businesses to their family members or to sell them, they would have to pay taxes on that. I mean, there are all kinds of logistical things that they have to wrap up in Galilee before they permanently locate in Jerusalem. So they have to do that. But in addition to that, you have Jesus who started his ministry with them there. That's where they mostly remember sitting across the table with him eating dinner. That's where they mostly remember him in the synagogue or him on the hillside. So what is Jesus trying to do? I'm the same trying to do. He's trying to tell them, I'm the same Jesus. This is the same Jesus of Nazareth. This is the historical Jesus from Galilee who has risen from the dead and is now the resurrected Lord you see and hear. So verse 16 says, the 11 disciples traveled to Galilee. They obeyed. First instinct, obey. Do what the master says do. And they went to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshiped, but some doubted. And Jesus came near and said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything that I've commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the very end of the age. So we can remember the imperatives of this chapter, the imperatives or the urgencies of this verse with four words. Worship, authority, commission, and presence. Worship, authority, commission, and presence. We're going to talk about those four today. First of all, let's take a few minutes and look at worship. We mentioned this in week one. We mentioned this a couple of weeks ago. Worship is our priority. Notice what they do. Verse 17, when they saw him, what did they see? The resurrected Lord, Jesus, in his resurrected state, never to die again. And they worshiped him. And some doubted. And you would too. I mean, I'd be worshiping and going, is this for real? Because this doesn't happen every day. It doesn't happen every day. You don't see a person raised to life never to die again every day. And then raised to life and declare himself the risen Lord of the cosmos. Like, that just doesn't happen every day. So naturally, normally, the disciples are worshiping like, wow. But then also, I, I, this is, I can't believe what my eyes are seeing. And that's the, that, that is 
the tension in the passage. And their priority is the worship of God. Listen to me. If, if God is not in his rightful place among the saints, if God is not where he's supposed to be in the church, then nobody is going to be made a disciple of Jesus. Because evangelism and outreach and missions begins with worship. It begins with God in his rightful place. And the pursuit of his glory and the pursuit of his majesty and his supremacy is our highest priority. It's our priority as a church. is to acknowledge who Jesus is. And Jesus agrees with this. Look at what he says in the Gospel of John, chapter 12, verse 32. He says, as for me, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. I will draw all people to myself. Notice the correlation. Our, our best evangelistic strategy is the worship of Christ. Is to exalt Christ together. Now I know that's our slogan. It has been ever since I think probably Rick Lum wrote it like 30 years ago. And I know it's not sexy. I know it's not slick. But it's right. It's tight and it's right. <laughs> it, it is. Because that is our calling. That sums up what we are all about. That is actually our evangelistic strategy, is exalting Christ together. When we come together and exalt Christ, Christ will draw all men to himself. Our greatest witness is our worship. That is true. When I first came into the church, I walked into the back door of West End Assembly of God, and it was a room like this, with about 500 people in it, all with their hands raised, singing the roof off of that place to like an orchestra, orchestra Maranatha music. And I had never experienced anything like that in my whole life. And I sat in the back of the room and I just watched them and I thought they were weird. And I was strangely compelled by the presence of God in that room. God is our first priority. And like the disciples, we worship. When we see Christ, we worship him. We lift him high. Two, second urgency in the passage is the word authority. Matthew 28, 18 says, Jesus came near to them and said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Now, if a man that I have been living with for three and a half years, raises from the dead bodily, and I see him in his resurrected form, never to die again. And he says, all authority in the cosmos, earthly and heavenly, has been transferred to me. I I'm going to believe that. I just think that's, that sounds like a credible claim. <laughs> right? I'm going to take a chance. If God has raised his son from the dead, then everything is new. Nothing is the same. Nothing will ever be the same. If this son of God has been awoken from the dead. And there are two words in the New Testament, two titles of Jesus that you and I need to be aware of that really communicate his heavenly authority like this. And it's the word, it's the Old Testament word Messiah, which is where we get that word is from the Hebrew term Mashiach. And then its Greek counterpart in the New Testament is the word Christos. And that word is where we get the word Christ. So when you see the name Jesus Christ, Christ is not Jesus' last name. <laughs> like, it's not, that's not his last name. That's his title. He's the Mashiach. He's the Israelite king. 
He's Israel's expected, long-anticipated king. And what was so surprising and so shocking is that the king of Israel came. He was anointed. He died. He rose from the dead. And then when he rose from the dead, he said, actually, I'm the king of the world. (laughs) I'm the king of everything. So what authority has been put under him? Well, human governments and those in positions of power. Human governments and those in positions of power. We have been quoting Romans 13, 1 through 2, which says, let everyone submit to the governing authorities. In that chapter, it is true that Paul commands us, generally, generally speaking, as far as it is up to us, we are to submit to the governing authorities. Why? Because they have been instituted by God. And those governing authorities instituted by God embody God's authority in matters of state. That is what Paul is teaching, for sure. And if you think that's not for you because you live in America, then you might as well throw out the rest of the New Testament. Because the rest of the New Testament wasn't written to you either. It was written to Greeks and Romans and Jews in the first century. So now, what you have to see in that passage, however, is even though you, gener- you and I, generally speaking, are expected to obey the rulers and authorities of this world that God has placed us under and placed us within their cultures, even though that's true, those authorities are still under his authority. They don't exercise their authority apart from him. They, they exercise their authority under the headship or the lordship of the son. So don't forget that part. So we have human governments and those in positions of power. We also have supernatural powers of evil seeking to influence those in human governments. So we have these supernatural forces that are working overtime to influence and control the people who are in positions of authority and power. And I think this is precisely what Paul teaches in Ephesians 6. Verses 10 and 12, he says this, finally be strong in the Lord and in, the, and in his mighty power. So you can't be strong in your power. You have to be strong in his power to fight this fight. He says, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Now, full stop. What are the devil's schemes? What's he up to? Well, you better believe he wants to trip you up. But mainly what he's working on, his main project, his number one project Is this next verse, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities, powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. What is Satan doing? He is doing everything he can to try to convince China to change their constitution so that Xi Jinping Jinping can stay in office forever, right, until he dies, so that he can oppose the gospel. He is trying to convince human governments to stifle and constrain the going forth of the gospel. So Jesus says this, all of the authorities in the earth and in the heavens have been transferred to me. I am over them all. Look at Hebrews chapter 2 verse 8. It says, for in subject, subjecting everything to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. As it is, we do not yet see everything subjected to him. What is he saying? Here's what he's saying. Here's, what, here's the point. There is no culture. There is no country. There is no legislation. There is no political party. There is nothing on earth that can stop the church of Jesus. Because the, the head of the church is Christ. And Christ is the head of the world. And Christ, all authority in heaven and on earth has been transferred to him. And Christ has said, go out into the world and win the world. Go out there and pierce the darkness with the good news of God's love and his grace and coming judgment. That's the gospel. 
And that message cannot be stopped by any country, no legislation. Look, there was no more totalitarian system of government than Rome. Rome makes China look like a free market republic representative republic. You know, like Rome is a totalitarian government in the ancient world. And they do not like people starting new religions. And they are exceedingly efficient at crushing them. Crushing them. And at first, they just ignored Christianity. It'll go away. (laughs) No, we won't. And then they persecuted, actively persecuted the Christian faith. And then they tried to exterminate the Christian faith. This went on for 250 years. And after 250 years, the entire Roman Empire was Christian. Now, don't tell me that anyone can stop us. No one can stop us. Because the power of God... The gospel is the power of God unto salvation, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. And when God sends a person, an emissary, an ambassador out into this world to tell them the good news that they can be saved from their sin and final judgment, they can be. And there's no government that can stop that. None. Amen? Right on. Number three, third word is commission. Commission. Look at verse 19. He says, then go. So the exalted Lord of the world, who has risen from the dead, has received all authority in heaven and on earth. Everything is now subject to him, though at present we do not necessarily see everything subject to him. And now he's commissioned us to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. So there are really four imperatives in this verse. Technically, there's only one imperative. It's the word make disciples. Grammatically, that's an imperative, which is a command. It's the voice of a command. But the participle in that sentence grammatically takes on the character of the main verb. So going is rendered go. Baptizing should be rendered baptize. Teaching should be rendered teach. It's an imper- they're all imperatives. And so what he's saying there is your and I... Our mandate is to go out into the world and make disciples and gather them to worship the one true God in spirit and in truth. And so we're to make disciples by boldly calling men to a decision for Christ, men and women, in the power of the Holy Spirit. We're to teach them to obey all that Christ commanded. We're not just to teach teach them what Christ commanded. We're to teach them to obey what Christ commanded. So remember last week, we said we need three literacies. We need a grace literacy. We need to look like Jesus. We need biblical literacy. We need to know the contents of Scripture. And we need theological literacy. We need to know the contents of our faith. So we're to go into the world. Now, Jesus built his church to be a going, sending, missional enterprise. Based on this verse, the DNA of the church, Jesus said, I will build my church. In Matthew chapter 16, what kind of church is he building? He's building a going, sending, missional enterprise. We are by nature a going out there, sending missionaries and evangelists, and living lives on mission. Now, this doesn't mean that every conversation you have has to look like the one I had with Billy. Right? That does that. Sometimes that works. You know what? For fun, try it. Just see what happens, right? Won't kill you. Who knows? The person might just surrender right there and submit themselves to the Lord. So, um, so, where was I going? Okay, yeah. So, not every conversation has to look like that. 
Okay, not every conversation has to look like that. Every conversation you have, though, with an unbeliever, an unsaved person who's not in the family yet, every conversation should be on mission, though. And it's on mission to bring them into a reconciled, redemptive relationship with Christ. We're not being sneaky. The love of God compels us to do this, right? So we're to go. And this is what we are by nature. What are we by nature? We're the gathering. We're the fellowship. We're the koinonia. We're the people of God. Fundamentally, we are not a business. We're not a business selling a product. We're not. We're not a club like Costco where you go and pay your $60 tithe and you get your little card and you flash it to enter and get your discounted Christian programs or whatever. You know, like that's not us. And we're not an entertainment company designed to wow an audience with the latest gadgetry or technology or, or just, well, look around you. I mean, obviously that is not a priority to us. What? <laughs> Have you ever worshipped in a more homespun room? Look, we're in a gymnasium. I love our chairs. They're comfortable. We are dropping some serious coin this year, just so you know, to upgrade the systems in this room, like our lights and our sound system and our kind of rebuild our stage so it makes sense for what we do on a Sunday morning. So we are. I mean, Daniel's working so hard on that. But I want you, I want you to take one second and look over in the corner of that room over there. Do you know what that box is on the wall? That's a bug zapper. <laughs> Have you ever worshipped in a sanctuary that had a bug zapper? <laughs> Look, the formula today is, man, your pastor has to be like this hipster Christian with the 1920 suspenders and the lumberjack beard and the nerd glasses. I do have glasses, but I really need them. And he's got to wear like the skinny jeans and the, everything has to be hip. Hipster Christianity, that's the way you reach the world. No, it isn't. Now, I'm just poking fun at my friends who do lead hipster churches. Guys, guys, don't be mad at me. Don't be sending me text messages. But that's not the way you win the world. You win the world when a church that is radiant in the glory of God, worshiping the one true Savior, is on fire with the love and compassion and the truth of God. And you send that congregation back out into a world that so desperately needs him. That's the plan. That's the program. So the church will reach souls when Jesus is lifted high and exalted and when we go into the world sending missionaries, evangelists, and people who, who live on mission. All right? Last word, presence. Well, you can't do this alone. Now, there's no way you can do it on your own steam, on your own power. Matthew 28, 20, it says, and remember, so don't forget this, because we're prone to forget this. This is why we come to church. This is why we gather. This is why you gather by live stream and watch every Sunday, because we have to remind each other, don't forget this, God is with you. Jesus says, I am with you. Always to the very end of this age. And Christ is with us by the power of the Holy Spirit that has now been poured out on the church. Acts 1, 8 says this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses at Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. When the Christian receives the Holy Spirit at new birth, the Holy Spirit fills us and we are empowered to tell others the story. We're empowered to invite them into a life-changing relationship with Jesus the Messiah. 
The Spirit was sent to change hearts. The Spirit is present, and He is God's empowering agent for evangelism. Jesus said in John 14 through 17, here's what He said. He said, I'm going to go away. And they're very sad about that, and you would be too. They were very sad. But Jesus says, don't be sad because I'm going to send you another one. Who's another one? Another member of the Godhead. And he will be not just in a room with you, not in the middle of your circle here. He will be in every one of you, poured out on all of you. The Holy Spirit is the key to Christ's presence. So remember, you and I have to be reminded of this. God is with us. He's not going to leave us. And he'll be with us to the end of the age. So what makes evangelism to recap and outreach a reality in our community? It's a church that is radiant in worship, exalting Jesus together. It's a church that has been authorized by the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth over governments and the powers of hell. It's a church that is commissioned and commanded to make disciples by baptizing them into the body in his name by teaching them to obey, to follow all his commands. And a church that is filled with the Spirit, God's empowering, transforming presence. Folks, that's the program. I don't have a super snappy pro-style program that I downloaded off of lifeway.com. It wouldn't work anyway. Because that's the plan. You're plan A. Isn't that shocking? <laughs> I know for me. I'm like, I'm plan A. That's shocking. So let me now give you some practical application so that you can put this into practice. One, strike up genuine uh, friendships with unbelievers. Make an effort to strike up genuine friendships with unbelievers, people who are far from God, maybe neighbors. Jesus didn't talk at people. He talked to people. Jesus saved the lectures for the Pharisees, the religious folk. And what he did, you know what he did? Is he embedded himself in the fishing villages and the streets and the markets, and the hillsides, and the synagogues of his people. Jesus could be found where people are. And you and I need genuine, genuine friendships with people who are not in the faith. Did you know that 98% of people when surveyed, when they are asked the question, how did you come to faith in Jesus? You know what their answer is? Through a relationship. My mom and dad, a spouse, my pastor. Someone led them to Faith in Jesus. That's the program, you and me. Two, start spiritual conversations. Now, it doesn't necessarily have to start with, hey, are you saved and uh, saved from hell? You know, like you don't have to start with that. But you can start with this question. Where are you with God? Are you a praying person? Who do you pray to? That will open up a very interesting conversation. Do you think there is an afterlife? And where do you suppose people go when they die? That's a, that's a fun conversation to have with people. And then where do you think you stand with God? Where do you think you're going to spend eternity? And that's another conversation starter. Is there anything missing from your life right now that you feel like is really just sort of catastrophic and you, need, you would need God's help for if God did exist? You know, like asking people a question like that, all that does is crack open the door so you can bring them into a conversation about what they need, which is the gospel. And these kinds of questions can get you into conversations about spiritual realities, life and death issues, eternal matters. Number three, know your story. Know your story. This one is so important. Can you give people the two to five minute elevator 
elevator pitch for how you came to faith in Jesus. Let me tell you something. The key to people hearing God's story is to hear your story. When they hear the truth of God embodied in your story, it makes a profound effect on their lives. Listen, as human beings, we are wired to trust embodied facts. As human beings, we are wired to trust embodied facts. This is just the power of the incarnation of Jesus. A God who would have otherwise been abstract comes and is embodied in the life of Jesus of Nazareth. And his life of purity and grace and truth and death and sacrifice and resurrection. That is the most compelling story in the history of the world. And when Jesus transforms you, your story becomes one of the most compelling stories in the world for the person that you're talking to. Years ago, Carrie and I bought a Kirby vacuum. Anybody else ever buy one? People who laugh say, yes, I, got, I did that too. And we had that thing forever. And I want to say that thing was indestructible. That salesman did not lie. Was yours? 100%. I, couldn't, I could run over with a car. That thing wouldn't break. But it was also weighed about 200 pounds. And my wife just couldn't get it around the house and around tight corners. But I remember the day we bought it. Carrie's smiling right now because it's such a funny story. The, this young salesman comes to our house. He knocks on the doors. He's like, hey, I'm a Kirby vacuum salesman. I almost slammed the door in his face. And he's like, uh, can I just have a couple minutes of your time? I go, man, I don't have time for this. And he just began to tell me about, uh, about how wonderful of a product he had at home. Like the first thing out of his mouth is, well, I own one of these. And I can tell you, it'll change your life. <laughs> and I was like, really? He's like, yeah, oh, man, we use it for everything. Cool. What, what kind of vacuum do you have now? I was like, well, I have this. See, he started a spiritual conversation with me. And, uh, and next thing I know, I've let this guy into my home. I'm like, yeah, well, bring it in. Let's see what it can do. So he's got all the attachments. He's putting them all together. And every single thing he demonstrated, everything he demonstrated, he kept tying it back to, now, this is how I use it in my house. See, this is how I use it on my carpet. This is how I use it on my, uh, you know, uh, uh, couch, the bed. He cleaned the bed for us. And he was like, oh, you know. Look how clean, your bed is coming cleaner than mine does when I use it, you know. So he kept telling me that. And then I was thinking, yeah, this thing is looking pretty good. And then he said, hey, that, uh, are you ready to make a decision? <laughs> For Kirby. <laughs> the gospel of Kirby. And I said, uh, I think I might be. He said, well, it'll be, it'll be $2,500. I said, it might as well have been $25 million because I'm not spending that on a vacuum. And he said, you know what, let, let me call my, let me, he calls, he calls his guy and his supervisors and he says, you know what, my supervisor said, I'm authorized just for you to bring it down to 1800. I'm like, it might as well be 18,000 because I can, there's no lifetime in which I could do that with a vacuum. He goes, you know what, let me call him again. He did. He comes back to me. He says, man, we've got a great smoking deal here. $1,200, six easy payments. And I said, sold. I bought the Kirby vacuum. I think we had it for 20 years. So I did get my money out of it, but six easy payments. Not one of those payments was easy. They were all very difficult, very hard. But it did. It worked great. Now, why did I buy it? Because this guy didn't come in with facts. This guy didn't come in with just, you know, the specs. He came in with an embodied story. He said, this is how I use it at home. 
You and I are wired to trust embodied facts. And so your story, the way that God wants to tell his story to someone is through yours. How you came to faith. Do you know the details of what led you to that moment of decision? Do you know how and when you came to faith in Christ? Can you tell people after you believed what a dramatic difference Jesus has made in your life? Listen, it's, it's not a sales pitch. It's the greatest story ever told. Next, invite unbelieving friends to a Bible study. Did you know that about 66 to 76% of people, depending on how you read this George Barna statistic, but depending on how you read that Barna Research Group statistic, anywhere between 66, two-thirds, and 75% of the people in our country say that they want to learn more about the Bible. They're interested in the Bible. Either they say they're interested in learning more about the Bible or they're very interested in studying the Bible. Now, these are not Christians who were uh, uh, interviewed or surveyed. These are just people in our country. The vast majority of people, they, might, they may not believe the Bible's inerrant. They may not believe the Bible's inspired, but they're interested in the Bible. And so one of the most effective things that we can do is actually take them through a Bible study. Take them through the Gospel of Matthew. Take them through the Gospel of John. That, is, that can be a powerful evangelistic tool. And some other tips on that is make sure you're in a comfortable setting. I would say do it in your living room or your home. Keep your numbers small. This is a big one. Listen. Be wary of Bible scholars who come to your study and make your unsaved friends feel stupid. Never invite me to your study. <laughs> I'm not joking, because I will blow it up with Greek words. You don't want me there. You just want you and the Holy Trinity and the book and the person. Keep it focused on Jesus. The key to knowledge, we read it last week, Luke 11. The key to knowledge is Jesus. Keep it focused right on Christ and keep it interactive. Look, make some space for them to say what they've got to say. Years ago, we used to host these dinners, and I had this friend, his name was Michael, and he wasn't a believer, but he thought he was a Christian, and so he came over, and he's sitting there at the dinner, and during the discussion portion of the dinner, I asked him, I said, so what do you guys believe about the nature of God? What, 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 what do you believe about the nature of the Trinity? Because I kind of explained that to him, and my little friend Michael said, well, I believe the Trinity is like three aliens, man. That's what he said. Like one alien from one out of space. And they tell me his whole theory about how the doctrine of the Trinity is really about three aliens. And you know what? I didn't just shut him down with the Westminster Confession or like the Chalcedonian Creed. I didn't do that. I just let Michael say what he had to say. And I heard him out. I gave him space to tell me what he thinks. Because if you don't give people the space to, to say what they have to say, they won't listen to you. And so eventually he gave his heart to the Lord. He jettisoned all that false belief, embraced Jesus Christ, and we, he was baptized and he gave his heart to Jesus. Number five, boldly ask for a commitment. One of the most impressive things that the young salesman, the Kirby salesman did when he was preaching the gospel of Kirby is he turned to me and said, are you ready to make a commitment? And that shocked me. That surprised me. And as Christians and as evangelists, you and I need to do the same. There's a point at which 
you and I need to be able to discern by the Spirit, now's the time I need to ask this person for a commitment. I need to ask them to come and cross the finish line of faith. Come to Jesus. Come to faith. And so how does a person receive Christ and the forgiveness that he offers? Well, it's Romans chapter 10. It's confessional. With the heart they believe. They believe in their heart the message of salvation that you've presented to them from the scriptures. And they confess their sins and their need for a savior. You don't need a savior if you're not a sinner. And so we confess our sins and our need for a savior. And then they affirm the truth that Christ died for their sins and rose again victorious over death and pledge their life to him. Listen, you can close the deal. You can. Just follow the leading of the Lord and just follow Romans 10. Let's pray. Father, we're just so thankful this morning. Uh, We're so thankful for our veterans for all of those who serve in our military. And we're reminded today of the sacrifice that they are willing to make, and many have made the ultimate sacrifice for our freedom. And that is a picture, as Patrick said earlier, Lord, of of the sacrifice that you made for our freedom, spiritual freedom. And we thank you for that. Lord, we thank you that we can come in a place like this, just the homespun, a gymnasium, you know, and just be the church gathered in worship in adoration, serving and surrendering to your authority and your word, and then just getting fired up to go back out into the world and share this contagious gospel with people. Thank you for the freedom to do that. And Lord, we know that there is no power, there is no government, there is no culture, there is no legislative body on the planet Earth that can stop this gospel going forward. We know that, and God, we just want to thank you for that. And we commit ourselves right now to being the church that exalts Christ together. In Jesus' name, amen.